we are not a people without faith and we are not a people without hope. And I thank God for that. I have a friend, Richard Arsenault is a friend of mine. He's a lawyer who's in town working with me on a, or I'm working with him. I don't know how all of that parses out, but together we're working on a project. And uh, uh, he's graciously comes to class and, and encourages me, uh, reads our lessons when he's not here. But Richard and I were talking recently or through email, and I said, how do people face death without faith? And his email back was a lawyer's short, terse email that communicated everything. He said, not very well. And that's exactly right. But we are a, a family of faith. And I'm absolutely convinced, as certain as I'm standing here, that on the other side of death lies a Lord and a Savior with open arms and an eternity. And and it's what drives me. It's what compels me to spend time preparing these lessons each week. And it's what invigorates me to get to share with you this morning. So Becky and I got back yesterday uh, uh, about lunchtime. We had been on vacation, and last Sunday, right after class, we hightailed it out of here, went to the airport, and went to Colorado. We were in the mountain town of Telluride, Colorado, when I decided my persona is all wrong. I am not meant to be this staid lawyer who wears nice conservative socks. (laughs) There is within me this... This man waiting to be born. And all that I need to be born into the man I'm meant to be is a new hat. Because I wear baseball caps. But I don't mean a baseball cap. I'm talking like a real hat. A hat that kind of combines Clint Eastwood from the vintage of the good, the bad, and the ugly. With a little bit of a Woodstock 1969 Summer of Love hippie thing going on with just a little Indiana Jones, because this is my new me. So I said to Becky one morning, I said, hey, let's go down into Telluride and go to the hat store. She said, what on earth for? I said, I need a hat. She said, why do you need a hat? I said, this is the new me. And, and I really think I think I need a hat to finish who I am. And so we went down there, and, and I started trying on hats. And I pulled out a hat that I thought was pretty cool. I said, what do you think? She says, wrong hat. So I tried another one. Wrong hat. Wrong hat. Fifteen times I hear wrong hat before she finally says, okay, let's go with that. I'm thinking, is it because this hat looks good? Or is Becky's fatigue factor kicking in after 15 wrong hats? So... We bought it, and I thought, oh, not that one. Howdy. So, I tell you that because the hat, you know, you get the wrong hat. It's not quite who you are. And I... That happened the morning I was typing on the lesson. So I used it as the introduction because this is a great Sunday to do that. This is a Sunday where Paul gets mistaken for someone who wears a different hat. 
But that doesn't happen until the middle of our class. So we've got to back up just a little bit before that. And we'll talk about Paul's case of mistaken identity uh, uh, here in just a moment. To get there, we need to go back to the map and get caught up on where we were from last week. So we've been dealing with Paul's missionary journey, his very first one. And Paul left from Antioch, went south to the harbor, caught the boat over to Salamis on the island of uh, Cyprus. And so Paul doing that with Barnabas and with Luke. They get over to the island of Cyprus, they land at Salamis, they walk across the island to Paphos, and at Paphos they encounter a Roman uh, um, uh, uh, governor, for lack of a better word. He's a proconsul, but we would think of him maybe as the governor of the island. And Paul, in the process of ministering to this governor, performs a miracle. And the governor is persuaded to the truth of Paul's message. It's It's an amazing event. Now, we might sit back and say, Poor deluded governor. We know there's no such thing as a miracle. The guy was just a cream puff. And if you think that, I would urge you to go back and read your Roman history and see what kind of cream puffs became Roman proconsuls. Doesn't happen often. Anyway, from Paphos, the three decide that they're going to go on up into mainland Turkey, we would call it today, to a city called Perga. They go to Perga. It looks like now Perga, from there, there, Paul and Barnabas decide to go to Antioch, but not so John Mark, the third of the, the three missionaries. Why Paul went to Antioch, we don't know for certain. But we do know that Antioch was part of a region called Pisidia. So it's called Pisidian Antioch. That differs it from the Antioch over in modern Syria. If you were here last week, recall I told you there's like 80 gazillion cities named Antioch at the time. Antiochus named, and there were a bunch of Antiochuses, and they all named towns after themselves. It was the George Foreman of cities back then. So they go up to Antioch in Pisidia. This is also an area called Galatia. And as Galatia, these are the churches that get the letter from Paul that we call the Galatian letter. Paul will write to these churches later. We'll get to that in two or three weeks. But in Antioch, why did Paul go? We know from his letter to the Galatians that it's probably because Paul was sick. And John Mark just didn't want to go. So John Mark catches a boat and heads all the way back to Jerusalem. And bless his heart, he missed out on some really cool things. And we started those last week in Antioch. Um, we can pull up a picture of Antioch today. These are the ruins of the Church of St. Paul. It's a church that was built in Antioch probably around the 300s. So figure 250, 300 years after Paul was there. So in Antioch, Paul goes to the synagogue. We discussed last week what a synagogue service would have been like. And Paul, as a trained rabbi, got called on in the synagogue to comment on the lesson that had been read from the law, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets. 
And Paul did so explaining how both the law and the prophets spoke of Jesus the Messiah. But how the Jews in Jerusalem, by and large, had failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and had, in fact, crucified him, fulfilling the very prophecies they didn't understand. And that from this came the deliverance of people and the assurance that death is not the end. Because that same Jesus was resurrected and had appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people in a very public arena. Multiple public arenas, lasting for weeks. So with that message, all of people are abuzz. We ended class there last week. We pick up from there this week. So all the people are buzzing, and we can read about it in Acts 13, 38 through 52. And the storyline's important, so it's worth pausing and uh, reading. We'll go over to the elbow. Acts 15, verses 38 is where we'll start. So this is the end of last week. Paul warned those listening in the synagogue, beware lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And now Paul says, those people in Jerusalem, not believing the prophecies and not believing in Jesus, crucified him, fulfilling the very prophecies they didn't believe in. But you listeners better be careful so that the prophecy about you does not come true. And here's the prophecy that he sets out. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul's saying, you're receiving the message, but you better be real careful. And this is how he sends them home from synagogue service. You better be real careful, lest you hear it, and as a scoffer, choose, ha, that's a bunch of balderdash. I don't believe that stuff. Man, what a bunch of crazy people. Paul gave away and, and turned his life over to this. Ah, he's loony. Paul's saying, be careful lest you be that kind of a person. Well, now, as the people are leaving, as they went out from synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Paul, will you come back next Friday night? We'd like to hear more. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there were a set who didn't simply wait for the next synagogue appearance. But they just went with them immediately and said, tell us more. We want to know more. And those people started coalescing into a body, a church, a group, of those called out. But the next Sabbath, word of mouth had spread all over, and almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, and here it doesn't mean all of the Jews, Luke sometimes uses the word Jews to refer to the unbelieving Jews. You just got to read it in context to see which time he means it. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The the Greek word there is blasphemos. It's, It's blaspheming him, reviling him. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now here's what happens. There are some Jews who don't like the fact that not only is Paul being well received with this message, which I'm sure infuriated those who were the Jews to be listened to at the time. But in addition to that, there's a bunch of Greeks and Gentiles that are coming in too. Now the exclusive Jew-only club is not looking so exclusive. So those believing Jews, Luke's not talking about. He's talking about the Jews that were filled with jealousy, that start reviling and inciting Paul. And finally, Paul just looks at him and says, Do you understand biblically it was necessary that I first present the message to you? But the message is not simply for the Jews. It's for the Jew first and then the Greeks. So now having presented it to you, with you rejecting it, I'm taking it to the Greeks. Because that's what God said to the Jews to do. Because Paul's quoting Isaiah. Where God says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation. Paul says the Jewish people are supposed to be bringing light to the Gentiles. Not closing their doors from the Gentiles. They're supposed to be spreading the good news. And their failure to do it, Paul says, hey, I brought it to you first. If you're not on God's team, that's fine. But I'm going out there and I'm going to do what God says to do. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, if you're in the narrative, stay in the narrative. But if you're into theology, Back away from the narrative for a moment. Because Luke's put two really cool ideas in contrast to each other. Look at what he says here. He says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as God appointed believed. You say, whoa, that's predestination. Yeah, it is. But, not to the exclusion of free decision-making by the individual. This is the paradox of God chooses, but man chooses. Paradoxical, yes, but factual. And there are lots of ways people try to work out that paradox. And it's as if you stand and you see a pillar right there, and you're just your head is locked in. You see that pillar. You say, there's a pillar. I can turn around here and see another pillar. There's a pillar. These are two separate, distinct things. They cannot be one, for one is here and one is here. And you have to look up to see how they join themselves into an arch, because they really are one thing. And there is a way, here, so here's what Paul or Luke says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, but this is just two verses after he says... Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Whoops, scoot that up a little bit. Since you thrust it aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul's got both of those things going. Both of those things going. And if you want to talk theology, 
that's something to talk about over lunch. And if you want to email me about it, in about six months, I'll answer your email. (laughs) Meanwhile, so what happens? Let's finish this passage. The Jews, uh, the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. Uh, Seriously, if you're interested in the theology of it, we will teach on that. But it'll be about six months from now, I think, before we get to it. And I don't have time to email you before that. So just stay in class. Um, The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Now, women of high standing. Luke, why would you throw that in there? And men who are the leading men of the city. I don't, you know, Louis Miori has a saying that I really love. His saying is, people are people. And they are. And they always have been. And this should be a warning to all high and mighty men and women. It's the high standing and leading men and women who sometimes have the greatest difficulty accepting a gospel message. That says, I'm not okay. I need help. Lord, may we never be that way. May we never have enough society standing, enough money, enough comfort, enough intellect to where we say, I don't need God. That message can't be for real. I'm doing fine. Just a... a, Luke puts that in there as a nice, gentle warning. He didn't accidentally include those words. So they incite persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drive them out of their district. When Paul and Barnabas leave, whoops, they shake the dust from their feet against them. And they head to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the church is established Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet for those who wouldn't believe, and they head down the road. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. They head down the road to Iconium. Now, Iconium is about a 90-mile walk. About a 90-mile walk. That'd be from here to 90 miles away. (laughs) Beaumont. From here to Beaumont. Beaumont, the... Iconium of East Texas. Um, so they go to Iconium. Now, Iconium today is uh, 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 in this mountainous region. And, and uh, we're up in the mountains, and, and this is a picture of the Iconium area. If you want to go to the city itself, it's not been dug up, the old city. The new city is over it at this point. So you can be walking on a park, and probably 30 feet below you are the ruins left from Paul's day. But in Iconium, we read about this in Acts 14, 1 through 7. And it's worth looking at for a moment. So let's go back to the text. Now, in Iconium, Paul still, Jew first, and then the Greek. In Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. 
Pleasant, when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they, Paul and Barnabas, learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So, if we go back to the PowerPoint, they're able to preach there in the synagogue. They're able to find converts. It's a, a good thing, but they reach a point where they're going to be stoned. And they realize that, so they leave lest they be killed. And they go just a short little walk, about a little less than 20 miles maybe, into Lystra and the surrounding regions. Now, this is where something really cool happens. But we don't get it if we only read Luke because we live in the 2000 range. We need to go back in time for a moment. So we don't know exactly where Lystra is. Most scholars suspect this is the, the tell or the dirt that's built up over time over the ruins of Lystra. But we can say that while Paul is there, something really interesting happens with his hat. Paul is mistaken for someone else. To understand it, we need to read Ovid. Ovid, Publius Ovidius Nasi, popularly known as Ovid. Ovid was a Roman writer who wrote probably 30 years before Paul was there. So I'm going to read you some Ovid from 30 years before the time of Paul. Ovid is writing a collection of the myths and the legends and the... Uh, he doesn't call them myths, so... For, for him, these are the genuine stories. And he's putting them together for people to read. We call them myths. But to them, it wasn't, oh gee, tell us a fairy tale. It was history, they thought. So here's what the people around Lystra thought was history. Then came Zeus. Calls him Jupiter because he's uh, uh, Ovid's writing in Latin, okay? And, and the Roman name for the Greek god Zeus was Jupiter. So humor me here a little bit. Hither came Zeus, disguised as a human being. And with him came Atlas's grandson. That's Hermes. He that bears the Caudius. Uh, there's Zeus and there's Hermes. The Caudius are the two snakes that go around the winged um, uh, serpent. So, he set his wings aside so he looks human as well. Hermes does. They came to a thousand homes. Seeking a place to rest. A thousand homes were shut up and locked against their knock. But one house received them. It was a humble house, thatched with straw and reeds. There was an old couple in the house named Baucus. That's the woman, woman's name, uh, Holly, uh, if you want. Baucus? Possible name for the baby. Just say it. It's a boy? Well, the boy's name was Philemon, the old man. Baucus and Philemon, 
of equal age were in that cottage. They'd been wedded in their youth and in that cottage had grown old together. They made their poverty light by owning it. We're poor and proud of it. Um, It was no use to ask for masters or servants in that house because they were both the masters, the servants, together. They served and ruled. So when the heavenly ones... Zeus and Hermes, came to this humble home, they were invited in. They had to stoop to get in under the door. And they came in. Well, it's fun to read this. It's not what class is about, so I'm going to skip through. But if you ever get bored and you want to know what life was like, it's really neat. They set a table and they take mint leaves and they wipe it on the table to make it smell good. And they... they, uh, Get the embers. They try to catch their goose, which is used to protect the property. If you have ever had a goose, you know that they can be vicious. And, but they can't catch it because they're just too old. So they're running around trying to catch the goose. It's, it's an interesting story. Zeus at some, Zeus, oh no, no, not Zeus. Hermes says, cause Zeus, you see, Zeus is like big God. Hermes is the talking God. Zeus is too big to be talking to mere humans, even when he's dressed as a human. So, Hermes speaks up and says, we are gods. And this wicked neighborhood is going to be punished as it deserves. But to you, Bacchus and Philemon, you shall be given exemption from this punishment. Well, they're just delighted. As the story unfolds, Zeus uses his power to transform their humble home into a temple. And Philemon and Bacchus are said, anything you want, you ask us, we'll give it to you. And the old couple say, we've been together since our youth. Our desire is not to die before the other one, but to, to die at the same time. So what Zeus does is he says, or Hermes explains that Zeus's position is that the two can grow old together and be the heads of the temple. And then when the time came for the two to die... Um, what they did is, uh, uh, it's too long to read this part. Their eyes start transforming and they realize as they're looking at each other, husband and wife, that the other one's growing like roots out of their feet and, a, and, and the bark out of their tree. And the last thing to go are their eyes as it gets covered over with bark. And the two become a tree, two trees that are intertwined together. And Ovid says, those two trees are still there to this day. And even to this day, the peasants in that region point out two trees standing close together, growing from a double trunk. With my own eyes, I saw votive wreaths hanging from the boughs of the tree. The people would go in homage to Zeus and Hermes and what happened. And in the de- recognizing the devotion of the two old people, the old couple, would lay wreaths and garlands on the trees. It's a great story, right? That's the region of Lystra. That is where we're about to read in Acts 8, Paul comes and Barnabas comes. And you're thinking, oh, we've got to go back to the Elmo. I mean, to the uh, PowerPoint, please. So that's the region where Paul comes, and that's the reason region where Barnabas comes. I don't know which church that stained glass picture of Barnabas comes from, but it looks a lot like Zeus. 
So I thought we would use it. And let me tell you why. If we go to the text of Acts 14.8, and we go back, look what happened. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. By the way, if you're crippled from birth and never walked and you're sitting, the odds are this is a very, very poor man. Money followed those who had health and vigor. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. This man who'd been lame from birth sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. It's happened again. He took the old guy and he did a miracle. You remember, there were two of them, Zeus and Hermes. There are these two guys, Paul and Barnabas. The gods have come down to us. Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. See, Hermes was the one who did the talking. Barnabas, Zeus, just looked godlike. His job was to sport a good beard. (laughs) The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city. Remember? The lowly home supposedly turned into a temple for Zeus. Brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. They've got the garlands because they've been putting them on the trees. But Zeus is back. Hermes is back. So, hey, forget the trees, forget the temple. Bring this oxen, we're going to sacrifice here. We'll lay the garlands down at their feet here. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, you're saying, well, why did they only hear of it now? Luke's telling you. These people had been saying it in Lycaonian. Paul's good in Greek, he's good in Latin, he's good in Hebrew, he's good in Aramaic. Evidently, his Lycaonian wasn't all that hot. Because it's finally clicking in. At first they're probably thinking, hey, this is fantastic, man. These people are really excited about the message. And then it's kind of like, what? You're, you're sacrificing to us? When the apostles Paul, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd crying, men. Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did... uh, uh, Good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now Jews wind up coming from Antioch and Iconium and convince the people to stone Paul. Because Paul's told them he's not a god. 
And evidently the people started believing it, especially when the Jews came. Interesting, the Jews came from somewhere, and you don't see Paul at a synagogue. That tells you that while there were Jews in Lystra and Derby, there probably were not at least ten Jewish men. Because it takes ten men to make a synagogue. Okay, So, uh, that's why Paul doesn't go to the synagogue first. He's just in the surrounding countryside visiting with the people. Now, having said that, if we go back to the PowerPoint, uh, we already are. Look at the contrast here. In the story recounted by Ovid, that the people would have known, that the people would have said, the gods, through Hermes, the mouthpiece, say, we are gods, and this wicked neighborhood shall be punished. But when Paul is there, Paul doesn't say that. In contrast, Paul says, we also are men of like nature with you, and we're bringing you good news. By the way, the Greek word for good news, euangelon, is translated gospel. We bring you the gospel. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. God is not here seeking to punish this neighborhood. God is here and has sent us to proclaim to you salvation. People don't believe it till the neighboring Jews come and then some get stoned. But we say some get stoned, not all. Because there is a young fella there who becomes a believer that we read about later. His name? Timothy. So Paul is there. This is Iconium Lystra. And he goes on down into Derby. Now, when he's in Derby, he's got uh, 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 some really more message that's being preached. But they've got a decision to make because they're at the end of their mission trip and they decide it's time to go home. Now, the map that I've put up here has these red lines, red squiggles. Those are Roman roads. Those are the roads that we know today were the Roman roads of placement. I want to strip out some of the extras from that map for a moment, put up this Roman road, and have you look at it for me. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium and Derby. They are very close to a Roman road that heads straight to Tarsus, Paul's home. Paul, who's been sick, Paul, who's now been stoned on top of being sick, Paul, who's been driven out of these towns where he's established churches, is ready to head back to Antioch, and the easiest way to go goes through his home. And instead of going home, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back through all of those towns so that we can encourage the brothers. Let's go back and minister to the churches. I just think that's pretty cool. I'm not sure I'd have done that. I think I'd have been thinking of my favorite restaurant. I'd have a chance to eat there. Say hi to mom, who happens to be my favorite restaurant. If you've ever had her cooking, but chance to go home, <clears throat> see the doctor, check in on things. And Paul doesn't do that. 
Instead, what Paul says is, if we go back to the Elmo for a moment, he says, when, or Luke records it this way, when they had preached the gospel to that city, this is Derby, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Yes, the place where they were getting stoned. Uh, and that's not in the 60s sense. That's in the sense of dying. And to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had preached the gospel... They went back strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations, I love these verses. This is not a situation where Paul goes and says, hey, you've become a Christian, now it's easy street from here on out. Paul recognized, of all people, Paul who, who had to leave because he was stoned, and they let, they thought he was dead and the disciples brought him out of the city in Lystra. Paul goes back to that place because of his love and devotion for the believers and his desire to serve the Lord. Now, we're almost through, but we're making a mistake if we don't pause for a moment and contrast Paul on these roads to the Paul who just a few chapters earlier was on the road to Damascus. Remember who Paul is. Paul is the, I mean, he would be voted most likely to succeed from his rabbinical school. He had the pedigree, he had the family, he had the credentials, he had the money, he had the education, graduated first in his class from the Harvard of his day. Any job he wanted was on a one-to-one -one relationship with the chief priests, had, had uh, council privileges, was the designated point man to fight off the heresy of Christianity, had a lineage that went back generations. And that man who's participated in the stoning of Stephen... That man who is going to arrest more and more people on the road to Damascus has some kind of an experience that so affects him, he changes every aspect of his life. He gives away his future, he gives away his fortune, arguably his family, and is so sold out for the mission of Jesus Christ that he personally will walk these roads and in, let his life be in danger and at risk because of his desire to minister to the very church he tried to destroy. And I go back to that time and time again in my life. Because it's not debatable. That this happened with Paul. I mean, even people who don't believe the Bible recognize, yeah, Paul was the guy responsible for this stuff. And that's a pretty good, accurate account of Paul, even if you don't believe the miracles. People will accord that as history. And my question to me is, 
what kind of person does that 180, that about face, if something radical didn't happen in his life, so radical that it sustained him all the way till he faces and ultimately dies a martyr's death. And we get so distant from it because it's stuff we know and it's stuff in a book and it's in the Bible and it's got all the religious overlays that we forget this was a real man in a real world, in a real life. You don't meet people who do that unless something has happened on the inside. Now, if they're a whack job, maybe. But you can read what Paul wrote. Those aren't the writings of a whack job. He's brilliant. He's perceptive. He's funny. He's got bite. He is a human being in his right mind. So, back they go to Antioch. And they tell the church what all had happened. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Back they go to Antioch. They sail back. Boats that sailed back then tried to hug the coastline as much as they could. Stayed inside of the coastline. They'd come in for supplies at different ports because they couldn't carry a lot. And if storms came up, they could retreat to a harbor, hopefully. But uh, um, uh, we've already talked about that passage in Acts. So let me say what happens next. So Paul and Barnabas go back and they start telling the church what happened. They go down to Jerusalem because there's a fuss about how to handle all of these new Gentiles and, and what should what should the rule of law be for the Gentiles and should they have to become Jews first. All of that unfolds in Acts 15. We've covered that before. So I'm going to leave it alone. But Paul then goes back with Barnabas and uh, where we're going to pick up next week, Paul and Barnabas are talking in Antioch. And Paul comes up with this idea. This is what he says. He says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and check on them. Let's see how they are. And it's that that begins the second mission trip. But as it unfolds, Barnabas winds up not going. A little bit of drama. A little bit of drama. Here are your points for home. Paul said to the disbelieving Jews, since you thrust it aside and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. That's got some bite to it. And since you thrust it aside, I take this stuff very personally. And I have this tendency to try to put myself in the lives of the people I'm reading about. And so I go back and I look at it and I think, how would I have been? Where would I have landed on that divide? It is my hope and prayer that I would not have been someone who knew too much to be beguiled by Paul. Not be someone who had too good of a life to think that I might need something else. I hope and I pray that God gives me the wisdom and the strength to walk in His ways and not my own. 
I hope and I pray that, that, that my life will not be one where I judge myself. And, and here's the irony. Those people thought they were judging themselves as too good for Paul's message. They were the leading men. They were the high-born ladies, or whatever he said. They thought themselves too good, too smart, too well-off, too in the know. And the ironic bite of what Paul says to him is, is you've actually judged yourself unworthy by thinking you're too worthy. It's just something that I can't get out of my brain. And it's changing the way I pray to God. Because I don't want to be that way. I want, to, I want to be a student of His ways and walk in them. Point for home number two. So Paul's talking and he sees this guy who's been lame from birth. And this guy won't take his eyes off Paul. He's listening to everything Paul says. He's listening intently. And he's staring at Paul. And Paul looks back and realizes, you've got faith. This man didn't say, Paul, would you heal me? This man didn't say, I've been crippled from birth. Can you do anything about it? Paul just looks at him. says, stand upright on your feet. Guy stands upright on his feet and starts walking. I like that. I This is my point for home for me on that one. If it works for you, take it home with you. I want to be someone who intently listens to God, trusting that He will supply my needs. Now, remember the difference between needs and wants. Uh, Bob Dylan makes a great point out of that on Highway 51. The, uh, is it Highway 51? Uh so-and-so knows what you need, but I know what you want. Oh, mama, can this really be... Stuck inside of Memphis with those mobile blues again. That's the song. Anyway, there's a difference between needs and wants. God promises to meet our needs, not our wants. And that's what molds and shapes us. Last point for home. They return to Lystra. They returned to Iconium. They returned to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That is a laser beam focus on the will of God. If you go back to the early church, the earliest writing we have outside of the Bible is called the Didache. The Didache was probably written around 75 A.D., maybe 85 A.D., so 30 years after this. In the Didache, it's a practice manual for how to be a Christian. And in the practice manual, it says that we should be saying the Lord's Prayer Three times a day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Three times a day. Not because there's magic in saying it. It's to be prayed, which means to be thought through. We don't know what practice was there for Paul. But it's very profound to me that Paul clearly, and the early church clearly, was tuned in to Jesus teaching them how to pray. Pater hei mon, ho in tois urinois. 
Father of ours, who is in heaven. Agias Theto to Onamasu, holy be your name. Then the next. El Theto He Basaleasu, come your kingdom. Actually, it's come the kingdom of yours. Come the kingdom of yours. That's Paul's laser beam focus. He's not living for any reason except to see the kingdom of God come on earth. You're going back there, you got stones there. That's okay. I'm going back to encourage the brothers. And I'm sure if those people who threw the rocks wanted to hear the word, he'd have shared it with them too. Now that's a laser beam focus I want in my life. Doesn't mean I'm ready to give up the practice of law. Because I think that's what God called me to. And I think I'm supposed to be pursuing things in that arena that are right and good and important for people. But it means that it's always in perspective that I'm doing that. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it to honor the Lord. doesn't mean that you should give up your job as a teacher or a professional. Or if you're a garbage collector, don't give up that job. Heavens, if we didn't have garbage collectors, what mess would we be in? But whatever you are doing, you do it recognizing, and I do it recognizing, we're doing this out of service to the Lord and to His kingdom. And there's purpose behind it. A laser beam focus that says, I'm not worried about what happens to me as long as I know I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I hope we share that focus with Paul, even though we're not the ones typically out on that mission trail the way he was. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the time to open your word today. We pray that the words that we've heard uh, that are, are uh, communicating your message will seep in. And anything I've said that, that seems off or is not in line with your will, Father, just let it bleed out our ears. But our desire, Father, is to focus on you. Would you purify that desire and, and meet our needs? Help us to listen intently to you. And to your word. And to find the meaning and purpose in life through serving you and your kingdom. It is our prayer that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth. Just as it is in heaven. As you meet our needs each day. Through Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen.